All right, so this week we are wrapping up the Old Testament book of Numbers. So we've been at it for a while. Elliot, how long have we been at it? Since Easter or something like that? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was an actual guffaw from Elliot back there. So, <laughs> so one of the things that we've been seeing, uh, I was talking to some women after the um, the first worship service, is so... We think about the book of Numbers and we're like, um, oh, the book of Numbers, a lot of lists, a lot of numbers, a lot of laws and things like that. It tends to be, uh, you know, the passages of Scripture that we don't tend to go to. However, um, it's interesting that the psalmists tend to love the book of Numbers. They're always saying, hey, you ought, to, you ought to read the account because it will teach you something. And the Apostle Paul seems to love the book of Numbers too. And he says, I want you to remember what God did all those years in wandering in the wilderness. So in the book of Numbers, what we've had is this long account of Israel basically wandering all around the wilderness, rebelling against God, you know, being punished by God, suffering because of their unbelief and rebellion against God. And this has been a long, long road. And... Passages like the one that uh, Jill Weepking read us today for our New Testament reading tell us that we ought to study these passages because it ends up shining a spotlight on our own hearts and souls as well. So one of the things that's been clear about the book of Numbers is we've looked at it every week and we have searched to see what does God do for people that are stuck in rebellion. We see, first of all, um, God knows that we struggle with unbelief and with idolatry. The Apostle Paul says the big thing, the big message we learn when we study the book of Numbers is our likelihood that we're about to make idols out of created things. It's just right there all the time. And God's not surprised by that. He knows exactly what his people are like. We're not going to read the passage again, but I do want to race to the head to the end, AJ. So what Jill read to us is God has just heaped up blessing upon blessing upon his people. When they needed deliverance, he provided it. When they needed food, he provided it. When they needed a cloud, uh, he provided it. We tend to think of clouds these days as curses. But you better believe if you're in the desert, God's provision in his cloud is not only a shade, but it's a sign of his presence with his people. However, it says that we're supposed to read about the account of Israel so we don't desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. So that uh, the Apostle Paul thinks about these folks as folks struggling profoundly with idolatry. I have read this great quote from J.I. Packer, who's an old, old uh, theologian, um, who had this quote that we're going to actually use in a few weeks when we're going through our series in the parables, the next thing that we get into. But this was such a great description of what Israel is struggling with and also what I'm struggling. And Packer writes, some idolize wealth, and Christ calls such the slaves of mammon. Others idolize and live for ideas, ideals, a cause, power, a wife, children, country, beauty, and many other things besides. The self-contradictory lust of sinful man to have something he can worship and master at the same time takes countless forms each exhibiting the same pathetic ambivalence, trying to rule what one serves, being enslaved by what one tries to rule, trying to play God 
to one's gods and ending up the captive of them all. That is idolatry in all its forms. It's a satanic parody of man's original relation to his maker and a source of endless misery to all its practitioners. That is an intense quote. You know, we're kicking off the sermon talking about satanic parodies and all these things. However, it's such a great description of what Israel's been struggling with, too. That propensity to make, to, to play God to one's gods and then ending up being a slave to all of it after all anyway, right? I hope some of you might sort of see yourself in a mirror in that a, a little bit, too. That's, that's part and parcel of the human condition. However, what we're going to read today is going to be a bit of shifting gears to the story of Israel wandering through the wilderness as God brings Israel right up to the brink of River Jordan and shows them what their inheritance is going to be. We're going to read from Numbers 36, 1 through 13. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. The heads of the father's houses... Of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Meshir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they married. So it will be taken away from our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, when they, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For each one of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, your word shows us exactly who you are and who we are as your people. Lord, I pray that you would open up your word, and by your spirit, uh, you would convict and encourage. 
We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so this is the end of the book of Numbers. It's just another bit of case law. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. That's the end. And I thought it was so interesting. First of all, like, I just want to explain what's happening here. I want to talk about why it's happening. So this wraps up a case that started way back in Numbers 27. When there were these five faithful women whose father died in the wilderness. And these women came to the authorities of the people of Israel and said, wait a second, when we come into the promised land, there's no way for us to get an inheritance because we don't have a father anymore and we're not married. So, in mercy towards these women, God gives them the command that the inheritance of Zelophehad's, the guy's name, can go to his daughters. However, we get here, we pick it up here in the very end of the book, the folks that are the advocates of Zelophehad's daughters and the leaders of a tribe called Manasseh, they come back and they said, wait a second, that was great that the daughters could receive the inheritance, but what if they marry someone from another tribe? If they marry someone from another tribe, then all this inheritance business gets complicated, for their inheritance will go to the new tribe into which they marry, and not even something like what the book of Leviticus calls the Jubilee year, when everything gets restored back to the tribes every 50 years, that won't help them either. Because everything will stay in the new tribe into which the daughters of Zelophehad had married. So we're afraid what's going to happen is that this tribe is going to disappear altogether. So Zelophehad, through the heads of their tribe, go to Moses. And Moses, speaking in the name of the Lord, says, here's what we're going to do. Marry within your tribe, and we're all set. And lo and behold, Zelophehad, verse 10, it says Zelophehad's daughters did that. So this is a completely undramatic ending to this whole bit of wandering. All these um, chapters about rebellion and, and uh, lightning and earth swallowing up people and stuff like that, that, that stuff was exciting. But it's, it's interesting that this particular ending, what is going on here? Why is this the conclusion to the whole book of Numbers? We view it as kind of anticlimactic. I was uh, laughing with uh, my family this week because we had a, um, a time uh, that we were remembering when my kids were small, we decided that we were going to go head up as a family to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. I don't know how many of y'all have ever been there, but I love it because it's kind of an old-timey zoo. It's like stone walls that you peer over, and then you see the capybara running around in the dirt right there. You can, like, reach out and touch it. So none of this sort of distance from this, like an immediacy to some of the animals. And the National Zoo is also famous because that's the place where they keep the giant pandas. We don't have many of them here in the U.S., do we? And they don't tend to thrive when they're in captivity. And so I said to the kids, we're going to go to the National Zoo, and our whole reason for going is we're going to go see the giant pandas up there. So I give them a little history lesson on U.S.-China relations, and, you know, we're going to the nation's capital, we're going to kind of go see the giant panda, and it's going to be exciting. So my kids are pumped. Well, when we get there... Um, it is a hot day, and all of the zoo's smells are out in full force. There is no shelter from the heat, and so we go to the place where the giant panda uh, is on display, and there is a massive line. And so you have it's one of those parenting moments where I'm like, oh, man, i got to calculate here. I could, 
you know, try to redirect the kids. I could just say it's just too hot. The line is too long. I could lie to them. I could do all kinds of, <laughs> I could do all kinds of things. I said, well, well, let's just do this. We're going to get in line. I'm going to prepare them. It's going to take some time to get in to see the giant panda, but you will not be disappointed when you see him. It'll be incredible. And so we stand in line and we do everything up our, you know, in our bag of tricks, try to keep the kids cool and entertained and fed and telling them stories and spraying them with water and doing all the things that we do. And we stand in line for like 45 minutes and eventually we get to the point where we turn the corner. We're supposed to get ready to see the giant panda. Well, there was a problem though, and that the giant panda was not in the mood to come out of his stone house. And so they were redirecting the line because there was no chance to see the giant panda that day. He was cooling down. Instead, we go see the red panda. Now, the red panda is about the size of a raccoon, and it's in a solitary tree in this lame sort of this sort of place. And there's like dirt on the ground and like one little guy up in a tree. And so my kids, <laughs> we we come up to the place we're looking at the panda we're looking at. Now, my son, my daughter is cool and she's very self-controlled. And so she's going to take things on in internally. But my son does not have an emotion that he does not tell you about. And he does not have a thought that he does not express. And so, and he's dramatic also. And so my son Coleman, in his little boy way, we turn around and he's, and he's like uh, looking at the red panda in the tree. And he screams out at the top of his lungs, he's puny! He's puny! And he starts, he's moved to tears. It's disappointment. I was remembering that too, like, and it's getting one of those parenting things. Like, there's just, no, we have to surrender now, you know? Pray that Jesus comes back and just surrender. There's nothing good that's going to come out of this. But I think too, that's a lot of times that's how we would approach this portion of the scripture. We want something dramatic to happen to close things up. But God's ordinary operations, God's ordinary way that He deals with us day to day, they are just not impressive to us. Every single one of us woke up today and God's mercies were new for us as they are every morning, but we're slow to count them, right? We came here and it's the Lord that gathered us to worship him, but we have trouble seeing the supernatural operations of the living God in the midst of our normal activities, but he is at work here. And this is what God, what God is trying to say through this passage God's ordinary operations, they don't impress us, but it is his normal way of going about things. We sing a hymn around here sometimes called Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. It's an old Scottish hymn written by some Presbyterian that was trying to make it clear to his church that when God operates, you could just miss it. It does not compromise his holiness and his mightiness, but we need eyes to see how he's working because his normal way of operating often is unresting, unhasting and silent as light. Okay, He never rests. He's always working. Even when we are asleep or ignorant of his operations, he's working. He's never in a hurry. He's the sovereign Lord, and he operates according to what he designs. And often the way he works is silent as the light is silent. It's coming in. We see it. We don't hear it. And that's the way the Lord often works. Um, here's a Bible study tip. I am in the Bible study business because I'm a pastor And I've been to countless Bible studies over the years. And I'm going to tell you a secret, how you can tell a terrific Bible study from a really terrible one. So you can flee for the terrible Bible studies. And so that is, if you are part of a Bible study and all they ever get to is how you should behave in light of what the Bible says, you're in a bad Bible study. 
It is true that the scripture tells us how to behave, but every single page of the scripture, you get the chance to ask the question, what does this tell us about the living God who's revealing himself? We cannot forget that the scripture is the revelation of God, God's word. And so even when we read a passage like this, as we have done all throughout the book of Numbers, it is telling us something about the ultimate author of the scripture. And God is revealing something about who he is and not just something about how a particular legal case went at the end of the history of Israel. We also can't think about this as sort of a happy ending for the daughters of Zelophehad. Things were kind of bad for them, then they got a little bit better, and now they're going to get even better. That's not the point of this scripture either. In fact, what we should see is Zelophehad's daughters were very vulnerable people, single women that needed an advocate. And... When we read this passage too, we see that the Lord is going to use our suffering and our weakness to prove himself. All right? So if you see anything about how to behave, it's be like the daughters and say, Lord, do you act on our behalf? Three things this case shows us. That's going to be basically the sermon for the day. When we look at this passage and we ask that question, not how should we behave, but what does this tell us about the living God? It tells us three important things about who our God is and what he is doing. Three very important things. First thing that this passage tells us as we read it, as boring as case law is, this passage is dramatically different than many of the other passages of Scripture we've read. It shows us that our God is in the cycle-breaking business that if, like Israel... We are in a cycle of unbelief and rebellion and blindness and trouble and doubt. Our God is the kind of God that breaks into the heart of that so people do not perish under the weight of that. Our God sees, like Packer's quote was saying, that we are so want to want to play God to our gods, just like Israel. But our God won't stand for that. He must break into that and free us from the cycle of unbelief and blindness and rebellion. That's what kind of God we have. So the fact that this is very undramatic is actually amazing because everything else has been about when you feel vulnerable, when you feel ripped off, when you feel like you might not get your inheritance. At that point, the thing to do is to mount up a rebellion and get a different God. But in this account, we see Zelophehad's daughters, through the folks that were their advocates, go to Moses. Moses speaks for the Lord, and Zelophehad's daughters just accept it and say, the Lord's spoken, let us obey. The very fact that nothing goes on in this passage is a picture that God is doing something absolutely new for the people of Israel. He's about to transport them across River Jordan into the promised land. There's been 38 years, 38 years of circular, aimless wandering and rebellion and trouble. The Lord's doing something new in this generation, and that's what this passage is a witness to. I had um, an incredible opportunity uh, in the past two weeks to work with uh, one of our partner churches and to do a talk on uh, family, family in the scriptures. Um, 
A lot of you all know this, but in case you don't, I'll catch you up. Um, not only has West End Presbyterian Church been about the business of planting new churches in our denomination, but we also have found a number of partner churches uh, that are preaching the gospel, use our building, and an opportunity for us to be a part of God reaching the nations in a unique way. One of them is uh, Raya Hope Church, which is a Nepali language, Nepali culture church. People that are refugees uh, from the uh, country of Nepal have ended up here in our neighborhood, and we've befriended them. And uh, those folks are just delightful friends. And so the pastor of that church came to me and said, Kevin, uh, we are doing our yearly young adult Bible school, and we'd love for you to come and speak to us on family. So what's going on is the pastor of this church who was a refugee languishing in a, a Nepali refugee camp for many years, became a Christian. And when he came to the United States and got safe passage here, he got about the business of every place where Nepali refugees were. He went to go, preach the gospel to them, and plant a church. So my friend Peter, believe it or not, he's planted 24 churches across the U.S. This guy's been busy. He's younger than me. I feel like I'm slow when I'm next to him, right? This guy, he, he just goes around wherever... He can find the people that he used to know in the camp, and he comes and he brings the message of the gospel to them, and they organize and start a church. But one of the things they do is these churches are dotting uh, urban areas all over America, and then once a year for two weeks, if you're someone who's 18 to 24, you come on here to Richmond, Virginia, you head to the chapel of West End Presbyterian Church, and Peter's going to run you through two weeks of, wow, all kinds of things, theology, Bible. Uh, learning how to share the gospel, learning how to pray. And it's re- they, these guys are really amazing. So they want me to come speak on family. And I tell Peter, I, you know, I don't know anything about Nepali families. It doesn't matter. You know the Bible. We want to hear what the Bible says. So I show up, and um, uh, they, uh, they said um, I could have uh, three hours to do whatever I wanted to do. So when I preach or teach here, one hour, I'm in and out, right? But not, you know, not, not these folks. These folks can, they're, they're taking their time and their vacation to come. So they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna spend some time on it. So I speak for a long time and I speak about family. And one of the illustrations I use is we spent some time in the uh, parable of the prodigal son. It's a picture of a family from the lips of Jesus, right? And in this, the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15, we see a faithful father who pursues and embraces his rebellious son and who pleads with his self-righteous older son and throws a party for those who are restored. And we spent a long time in this parable of the prodigal son making it clear that that the father represented in the parable is a picture of God the father. And what does the father's embrace of the rebellious son tell us about what kind of God we know and worship? Well, I've taught on the parable son a million times. Some of y'all have been in classes where you've heard me teach on it. It's very familiar. But something happened that day that's never happened before. And that is, as we closed our time, and I'm exhausted. We're talking, again, three hours. And after we're done all this time of teaching and we close it up, these young adults, 18 to 24, start coming towards me. And I start doing the American thing and I hand out my, put out my hand to shake their hand because I think they're just going to come and greet me. And one by one, the young adults come and they lay a big old embrace on me. I totally did not expect this. You know, the first few of my arms are stiff. 
You know, why they come and embrace me, but they keep on saying, thank you, pastor. Thank you, pastor. Thanks for the word and stuff like that. And so I look over at my friend, who's the pastor of the church, and he's laughing because he could tell I was uncomfortable until I kind of got in the swing of things. <laughs> and he said to me um, something that was just very powerful. He said, um, our homes are not always known for the warmth of the Father. Um, but you are a father of the church, and they have received your testimony. That's what the hugs are about. Isn't that very powerful? I, I was very moved by that, and not because they were thanking me, but they heard a story, a true story, about the posture and the heart of God towards rebels, and they craved that embrace, right? And so they came and laid an embrace on me, as a sign that they were receiving that witness. Our God is in the cycle-breaking business. And just like my Nepali friends, when they heard about how God is postured towards them because of Jesus Christ, and that changed the way that they related to the guy bringing the message, so God does that same thing here. Remember, In many, many, many years, 38 years, Israel had a pattern. If they felt threatened, they want to try to take it or they fled. They would curse God and curse Israel's leaders. But here we have a picture with the leaders of Manasseh simply coming and saying, we believe that God is doing a new thing. God, what do you have to say in light of our need? Do you believe that God is doing something new in your life, that if you're stuck in a cycle of unbelief and rebellion, they could break through that. They could actually soften your hearts and make you believe the witness of how your father is predisposed to you because of Jesus Christ. All right, let's, uh, let's keep on moving. So our God's in the cycle-breaking business. We get a picture of that in this passage. But we also get a, a picture here that God is at work in his people. Remember I said it was going to be silent as light when we look at this passage. But do not miss that this is a picture of God at work in his people. And just as surely as he's at work in this courtroom in Israel, he is at work here in this assembly under the rule of King Jesus. I read um, an account from church history, and I've been uh, mulling it over for the past few weeks. I've shared it with a, a number of you because it's so deeply challenging and encouraging to me. And I'm going to share it with you now. Um, some of you know that in my household this summer, we have been wrestling with just sickness. And um, it's been um, hard on us. Because uh, when you're sick, when your body's sick, um, you're tempted. Um, I, uh, I read the account of uh, the great uh, missionary William Carey, he was basically one of the leaders in this sort of modern missionary movement. And uh, his work in Asia, where he gave his life to trying to bring the gospel to China and to other nations. So part of William Carey's work, and this is uh, in 1812, Carey had been laboring to try to put together a Bible for people that read and spoke Sanskrit. And so he was giving his life to the translation 
and the production of Bibles in hopes that churches could be planted, that people could be converted, that the gospel would spread throughout the whole region. So for 15 years, he was working on his Sanskrit dictionary. And he was working hard to to try to get all this stuff in order. One night in 1812, uh, Carey got word that the place that was his publishing house and that held all of his life's work was on fire. Yeah, the whole place was burning. And the next morning, when he went with his team and his colleagues and they gathered around the smoking ruins of the publishing house, one of the guys on his team effectively said, Carrie, we have got to pray against the devil's work. We are getting some serious opposition and some persecution here. And so we have got to challenge our adversary. And Carrie said, um, that's not true. This is a gift from God. Lest we take confidence in our life's work, lest we rest on what we have done, God's given us a gift to cry out to him for mercy, for only his work can stand. And so you know what? They had a worship service around the smoking ruins of the guy's life work. Now that image for me has been super challenging and super powerful because you better believe I think I am building something and I work hard to preserve it. But Carrie's witness under the direction of the Holy Spirit was even a fire is a gift from God if it turns you to the Lord to depend on him. This passage is evidence that God's at work in his people. Once again, Zelophehad's daughters and the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh are under the threat of losing their inheritance, their life's work, the things that are due them, their glory, earthly speaking. And even when that is threatened, where do they go? They go to Moses and to the Lord for the Lord to be their advocate in their time of need. So Zelophehad's daughters and their representatives, they come with an incredible vulnerability. Again, for a second time, an incredible vulnerability, an incredible humility that can only come from knowing your real identity as God's people and favored by the living God. Carrie could say that the smoking ruins were a gift from God because he knew that he had God's favor and that nothing in this life and no loss can undo the fact that God spent all to secure him as his own, and that was his singular message he was bringing to the people of Asia. In this uneventful passage, the very fact that people come and trust what the Lord will declare is an evidence that God's at work in his people and that we can trust him alone. There's one other thing I want to say about this passage too. So it shows that our God's breaking cycles including the cycle of sin and separation and rebellion, that he's at work faithfully amongst his people, but it also shows that our God is for us. You know, why can we be so bold to say that our God is at work among us? I mean, we're asking that question right now. We're saying that we believe something invisible is as true as the visible things that we see here, that the Holy Spirit of God himself is in work in human hearts and in the community and in the world, how can we be so bold as to say such a thing? The Apostle Paul picked up this theme in uh, Romans 
chapter 8. And he argued for uh, confidence for the church to know that God continued to be at work. And he argued because God has already worked for us in the most difficult way. If God is for us, who can be against us? You did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we look at this case with the daughters of Zelophehad, they can come to him with the smaller matter of a need for a ruling on their inheritance because they know the greater thing, that God is the one who made the promise about the inheritance in the first place and must keep it. And how much more so for us gathered here on this side of the cross can we argue that if God gave his only son to suffer and die for sinners to give them peace with God and forgiveness of sins, who poured out his spirit on his people, if we have need of an advocate today, will he not also give us all things? If you need courage in in the face of what you're facing, If you need comfort in the face of the loss you are enduring, if you're suffering joblessness or conflict or unbelief or any manner of trouble, will the Lord not be sufficient for those things? After all, has he not given us his son? That argument, the greatest argument from the greater to the lesser. And as I look out here today, I know you're like me. I've been wrestling with sickness, but I see a million stories out there what you're wrestling with too. Know this, this is the starting point for the people. It's the starting point for these folks coming to Moses for a ruling for the Lord to speak. Our starting point is this, Jesus Christ has come and he has died. We can submit to the one who submitted to the cross for us, regardless of what our lot in life is, because the most difficult thing has been done for us. Atonement for sin and peace with God. Do you know that you have God's favor today? This undramatic, anticlimactic ending to the book of Numbers is saying precisely this. There's a peace ruling at this last bit of the wilderness for the people of God. And when God speaks, they hear him. They trust him. See that Jesus endured the cross for you to secure your final inheritance. See that you have favor with God right now. Repent of unbelief and idolatry and trust him. He is good and he is faithful. And if he has done that, we can bring every need that we have before him and he will satisfy us. Lord, it's a blessing to hear your gospel today. It's just a blessing to be with your people and to remember the great thing you did on a cross so that we could be forgiven and have your favor. Lord, I pray for all my friends here that might be wrestling with wanting to secure an inheritance for themselves. Lord, will you teach us glorious and humble submission before you? May we see the way that Jesus submitted to the cross for us to give us life, and to bestow every blessing that belongs to the Son of God upon his people. Lord, teach that to be our glory before you. Lord, I thank you as we approach the table. 
that we have an opportunity in the elements to see the suffering and sacrifice of Christ and to trust it anew. Lord, I thank you that you are patient with sinners, but you don't leave them there, that you do a new thing to bring us to the point of trusting you and what you've declared. We pray now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.